Hi, this is Ellen Barnett, and this is Smart Women I Know, and I'm with the fabulous <laughs> Pam Pleasance today. She is an educator um, and an administrator. Actually, she helps kids sort of figure out if they want to go to a boarding school here in Massachusetts called Milton Academy, and I should say it's it's boarding and, and day. day. Don't forget that. Now, first of all, welcome. Thank Pam. you. Um, Pam is a presence to be reckoned with, and nobody knows. Oh my gosh, you flatter me. You are you are you are this powerhouse that comes into a room and is just the friendliest figure. No one would ever know you've got this incredible bona fides behind you. And, and historically, it's generations of this kind of academic understanding, significance. Yeah, I, I can't imagine any other field but education. It's all I've ever known in my family. And we'll, and we'll dig into that. So I know that you... Um, Grew up in Hampton, Virginia for the most part, right? Yeah, most of my life I did. I was born there, um, went to school there until middle school when my mother, who was an academic as well, um, came up to Boston College to work on her doctorate. And we lived here in Newton for two years, and then her leave of absence was up, so moved back to Virginia, so I finished my high school time back in Hampton. And your your dad was uh, director of a several, several policy? Right. So he was director of the CP Center for the Peninsula, so the Cerebral Palsy Center. So, um, you know, it was a school, but also had uh, PT and OT for kids, but it was also a school as well. So some kids, you know, would just come in for PT and OT, but a lot would, you know, do their whole day there. Now, because of that, because it was a school, did you start, did you see him in action and go, that's, that's, I, I want to help people like that? Or did you say, okay, nonprofit work is really, really hard and working with these individuals has these challenges that I don't want to? I'm not sure I thought either way because I was so young and, my parents divorced when I was 10, so I'm not sure I really verbalized or articulated that. But for me, being at the CP Center was really um, kind of normative. I didn't see the kids necessarily as different or, you know, as people would say, crippled. Um, I still remember Candace. You know, I remember the names of some of the kids that were about my age. So if it was the school picnic, you know, I'd be there. Or he was more behind the desk and in the office. Um, so I can't say I really saw him in action as much as being there. Um, I remember Nancy who was, oh my gosh, Nancy must have been one of the PTs. But she had cerebral palsy and she and her husband were very close with my parents. In fact, my parents, and Nancy was white, um, and they were godparents for her son. So if you can imagine in, you know, the mid-60s in Virginia, these two black people as godparents for Robbie Sawyer. But, and 
even though it, I never, um, even though Nancy had a serious speech impediment, I guess because I always grew up knowing and hearing her, I never thought about that it was a speech impediment. Yeah. It was just, that's how Nancy talked and that's how Nancy walked and that was just who Nancy was. Um, so I never necessarily thought articulating nonprofit, but that side of education and then because my mother had also been in the classroom from middle school and high school as well as higher education, um, that was just kind of what I knew and I guess I felt comfortable in kind of academia, not even necessarily knowing what academia was. Well, and I would say that it maybe, and I'm, I guess I'm asking this as a question, you, you strike me as a very inclusive person. I think that that um, is, a, is a good word for what I suggested at the beginning, which is you're just friendly. Okay. Um, and I imagine that even in your role now with admissions, that feeling that a kid who is coming in here and wants to get into this school and is scared to death, to have a somebody like you which is a calming, inclusive presence, has got to be incredibly relieving. <laughs> uh, well, I would hope so. You know, it is definitely a nerve-wracking pro- process, and you know, clearly I'm on this end. But um, I've had kids and families oftentimes come into my office and say, "Oh, it's very warm and cozy." You know, whether it's my rock garden or my zen garden or you know, trying to have plants. Um, I have a rocking chair in here so that it's not just, you know, behind the desk, but that, you know, kids see that I'm relaxed. And that's really important. And I always start off the interview, you know, telling them to get comfortable on the sofa, move the cushions around. If they like them, they don't like them, um, because they can't really be them, their true selves. So, uh, the, you know, the running joke in, in high school was always, no, my last name is Pleasant. So you remember it either because you think I fit it or you think I don't. <laughs> either way. Um, but I, I guess I try. And even on my worst day when you're tired and you've got, you know, back to back to back to back interviews, you still don't want that last kid of the day, you know, to feel that he's not getting 100% of you. So I try. Did your... Did your parents knowingly, were they the kind of people that imparted these kinds of, you know, sort of big messages to you? Or did you just pick this up along the way through experience? And obviously, and we'll get into your education. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember like, you know, a book of wisdom of bone modes, <laughs> you know, like mother always said, um, no, not really. And my parents divorced when I was... 10 years old so you know I would say most memories are definitely more um, of growing up and living with my mother um, than you know that kind of family structure you think of the white picket fence etc yeah Um, not not quite that um, by any stretch so I think it was just kind of seeing a role model of a strong woman that you know overcame adversity that you know, got a divorce and decided to move from Virginia, um, you know, in a town she'd lived pretty much her entire life um, to go to graduate school, you know, with a, a, a 
gosh, how was I? I was like 10, 11 year old and starting something new. So I think that was pretty formidable. How did she support you guys? Well, she had a grant, so she was in a doctoral program, and so she worked on a research project. Um, you know, probably student loans. Mm. Um, and then she also would work as, she worked as a, as a housekeeper for this wealthy family in um, Chestnut Hill. They were both psychiatrists, and, you know, she would be a housekeeper. I still remember, you know, I think our first Christmas when we were up here, she'd never been away from home, and, you know, we spent it because she was, you know, doing their dinner party. Right. So... I'd say she did whatever she had to do to make sure to support us besides the loans or, you know, the stipend from the research project, whatever she had to do. Did you always feel positive about that? Did you always feel like, you know, I understand my mom is doing this and it's hard, but it's good for us and we're... Did you understand that or or is there a moment in that childhood where you just turn on that and go... What the hell are you doing to me? I had a really <laughs> nice life. No, I I don't remember being bitter or um, spiteful that she had kind of, quote-unquote, uprooted us. Um, you know, it was kind of a new experience. It was the two of us. And, yeah, I, I think I kind of you know, go with the flow. I, I don't remember... Like, you know, I hate you because you put me in this situation sort of thing. And no big changes for you, like, no, you know... No, we would still go out to eat. I still had piano lessons. You wow, know, um, that's... Those sorts of things I didn't know then, but, you know, my eighth grade trip when we went to the White Mountains, the class, you know, my mother couldn't afford it, and all of my kind of aunts and uncles and grandparents you know, all chipped in to make sure I could have the backpack that I needed and the the boots that I needed and did I have the canteen or whatever it was on that checklist that probably most kids had that I didn't. Um, she made sure that I could still partake in those experiences. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, and I know, I know your mother has passed. She did, in 2013. But she was an incredibly important part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me how, how you went through life together. Because in a sense, it was you and she, and you're both going to school just at different levels. Yeah. You know, and making, getting by. Yeah, so I, I guess seeing her doing it, that I never thought that I couldn't do it. And she was not able to finish, so she did end up what's called ABD, all but dissertation. And part of that's because her leave of absence was up, and she went back, um, you know, back to teaching. And part of that she talks about was, you know, not having the support of her advisor to help her find funding or apply for grants that she didn't know about. Um, then when I started college, she moved back up, so that was... Oh gosh, my sophomore year in college, she moved back up to finish up her degree and she was working at Wellesley College in residence um, and then still taking classes.
I know that, um, and we could go through your whole history um, and your your work history, which is which is pretty profound. You went to Kenyon. I went to Kenyon College, um, and and then you went to Harvard Grad School for Education. I did. So uh, six years in between. So I went to Kenyon as an undergrad. Then I worked there for three years in the admissions office. Um, and then, so my initial plan was to go to um, Harvard right after Kenyon. I got accepted, um, but had gone to Choke Rosemary Hall recruiting. It was at kind of the you know admission officer's dinner and just kind of chatting with their one of their um, admissions officers how they did stuff, their recruitment, minority recruitment and stuff and. He had mentioned, well, we actually will have an, uh, an opening probably. And so I figured, yeah, okay, I'll apply. It wasn't like, oh, yes, I've got to get out of Kenya and, you know, flood the world with, you know, applications everywhere. Went and got hired. Um, I said, okay, I can defer, kind, not really defer Kenyan, uh, Harvard, but within three years I could reactivate just kind of updating what I'd been doing versus having to start over with right. GREs and all of those sorts of things. So um, after graduating from Kenyon, three years in admissions at Kenyon, and I did three years at Choate, then I went to Harvard to graduate school. And um, you worked with two pretty significant women uh, you were originally thinking about being a child psychologist. Yeah, so, you know, who knows where that came from. Like, at, at some point, I always thought, I, wanted, I want to be a psychologist. I want to be a child psychologist. Um, and, you know, kind of admissions, in some ways, kind of working with students and kind of that college piece. When I got to Choate, I did a lot more in terms of um, the, not just the minority recruitment, but also retention. So they didn't really have someone that kind of did retention pieces. So I had worked with kind of the student group, kind of getting them a little bit stronger, hosting like a New England conference for black and Latino students for the weekend on campus. Um, and a real interest, I guess, in girls. You know, I had gone to a large public high school, so that the elitism and the privilege of boarding schools was not what I grew up with, having experienced it at Kenyon and seen it, um, thinking, all right, well, you know, if a kid can go to a boarding school or an independent school beforehand, that's going to give them a skill set to be so much stronger if they get to a Kenyon or, a, you know, the, the upper-level colleges, those selective liberal arts schools, um, than they would coming out of, like my large public school right. experience. Um, so when I went to grad school, I had taken a class on adolescence with Carol Gilligan um, and my teaching fellow at that time, Jill Taylor, um, knew kind of of my interest because one of my papers, I went back to Choate and interviewed some of the girls on their experience in that world. Um, and Oh gosh, Tawana Brawley. I don't know if you remember. No, that. of course I remember. Brawley. Al Sharpton. Yeah, Al Sharpton. Um, I had done a paper, you know, kind of looking at kind of the cultural piece with that um, and something else. And I had read some books and kind of 
pulling it all together. And I was also um, doing my field experience with the Upward Bound office on campus. So kind of continuing to work with adolescent girls. Um, and so Jill, who, as I said before, was a teaching fellow for Carol's big adolescence class, um, was taking a new bent on some research. Carol had done her book by that point in a different voice. She had done the Laurel School and looking at the voice of mostly white girls. And so they were interested in, is, is this the same culturally for different groups? You know, that's a suburban white Midwest group. Well, what does it look like for urban girls of color? You know, maybe at Cambridge Ridge in Latin. So they had already done the um, interviewing and it was now the time to kind of look at the text and what were some of the themes, what was coming up. And um, they didn't have any women of color on the team. They had one woman that kind of came in and came out. And it's like, here we are again, right. missing the voice of women of color. And so <clears throat> after I graduated, I um, was a research assistant on Jill's project. So she was project director. You know, Carol is the, the big cheese with it, but, you know, Carol would only pop in, you know, every now and then. And can you just tell people who Carol sure, and Jill so, are? Because so Carol, I got to do some research, <laughs> yeah. but you all don't know. So Carol Gilligan um, is this psychologist, very much kind of one of those early women in terms of women's psychology, um, in a different voice, looking at how do women think differently than men, their sense of care and justice, uh, not injustice, and justice, um, and kind of looking at that as a strength, the voice of women and what they bring. Um, and so that was really kind of the 80s uh, when Carol was had done, I think, in a different voice. You know, everybody read it. And it was Mae Blinchy and kind of, you yes. know, this wave of, of books, you know, kind of the women's experience. And so Carol was teaching it at Harvard when I was there. You know, and her class was just massive. You never saw Carol. <clears throat> Most of the work really happened in your sections. Um, and I was lucky that I had Jill, who had just finished her doctorate and so was continuing on. Excuse me, get a sip of water. And so Jill McLean Taylor was the project director and kind of looking at kind of again this piece of this these urban girls and voices. Um, and so what I was really doing was just kind of, you know, looking at themes and data as we were doing stuff. We'd all kind of write some short papers or contributions and going through. So I was not part of the data collection as much as the review um, as Jill was then pulling her book together, mapping the moral domain. Um, so it was really exciting because I was kind of combining the, the theoretical piece of the yeah. voice of girls um, and adolescents with the practical. I was assistant director for the um, upward bound program at Simmons. So I, the summer before I went to um, Harvard, I had was the residential director for their summer program, which was mostly um, Latino girls, 
Haitian immigrant girls and Chinese girls. Tell me, it seems like this this is a marker throughout your career. Is it something that you feel that you've continued? I mean, you keep finding yourself in places <laughs> where there aren't a lot of voices of color. I mean, yeah. Milton Academy is multicultural, but it has a strong legacy group and a long history that didn't come from a multicultural right. school. Um, yeah, and in fact, um, there's a African-American faculty member. She was on sabbatical this year, and with her on sabbatical, I think I was probably the oldest woman of color here. Oh, my um, goodness. In my, you know, she's, she's got maybe eight years on me because she just had her birthday. Um, but if you think about faculty members that have, you know, they just retired, that five of them have like 171 years between them, you know, that had been here 49 years, 30 years, 37 years. One woman of color just celebrated her 25 years, and she's been here the longest. How, how, when you're dealing with these situations, how open are the, and, and I'm not talking Milton, I'm talking in general, have you found in your experience that people are open, when you're dealing with a 49-year veteran, mm -hmm. one would suspect that they're not open to things, that, I mean, that's a significant amount of change and looking at things in a new way, especially when, I mean, I think the conversation has shifted in education for the last 15, 20 years about bringing in more voices yeah. and making sure that those voices are heard. Albeit, it's a slow change, yeah. but... I think we're fortunate that in Milton, even those faculty that have been here, you know, 50 plus years, are still always wanting Milton to be better and embracing the change and what that diversity does. That it's not, well, when I started here. Right. And that I so appreciate. And yes, you know, we've had some growing pains this year in terms of change and how does the institution really reflect not just internally, you know, or visually the world outside, but systemically, how is it that our institution really embraces, um, you know, a larger diverse population? How, how do you, as administrators, marry this idea that um, we want to make sure that these voices are heard, that they're significant? Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with adolescents mm -hmm. who, who have incredibly strong, extreme views one way or the other because... That's this is their time to exactly, do that, exactly. right? Um, how do you measure that and still, you know, accommodate a grading system that we have to be regimented about? And everyone's got so much time, including teachers. There's not a lot of. It's not like fifth grade for children, where there's there's a, a sense of care that's delivered. By, in, by teachers in a way that in high school it just doesn't... Yeah, so I think, you know, for us this spring when we had classes kind of interrupted 
for some teachers, they were able to go with the flow and realize that, you know, you might not get to Z by the end of the year. And others, you know, embraced the learning opportunity that came with that. You know, whereas others, it's like, you know, what are we doing? But overall, I would say that the, the faculty here, again, we are fortunate that they, you know, when, when we had a sit-in, there were a group of us getting lunch for the kids because they didn't want to get up and leave. How many places can you find, you know, that happening, you know, or um, I remember students saying, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss history, you know, and I said, um, your history teacher is out there sitting in too, so don't well, worry about it. And I think that's, <laughs> I think it's, it's a different kind of education that's much more lattice versus top-down ladder, like I'm at the top, you're at the bottom, and what you say is there because we're the administrators and we're teaching you. It's, yeah. it's a much different kind of, of learning system and I think, I think overall in this state there's um, perhaps a lot more of this, um, but, I, but I don't know. Yeah, well you know, I don't know how many schools where you would have the head of school and the principal you know, get this quote-unquote list of demands from students and say, we want you to address them. And they do. They say, well, we, we don't feel we can adequately give you an answer by today. Can we do that tomorrow? I'm like, what the what? So I think our students here really um, benefit from having, you know, administrators that as difficult as things were, apologize. They said they were sorry that this institution um, let students down. I don't think that happens everywhere. No. Um, and that we also, you know, somebody told me, it's like, well, admissions has done their job well because what that means is that you have enough of a critical mass and diversity of voices that they feel like they can own it. So it's not this tiny little pocket, you know, to say, oh, we've got 2% students of color, would that be able to affect the type of change when you have 42%? So that diversity is going to mean, yeah, this is how you deal with diversity. Milton isn't the same school it was in, you know, 1957, 67, or even 77, you know, when you started to get more students of color in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so, how, how does that affect who we are and how that this is a place that allows that? And I don't think every school would be as accommodating to the dissidents that we had. Yeah, and, and, and it strikes me, it strikes me as very interesting that you're a part of this and you were part of it with sort of the seminal books were being written about inclusion for women mm. and the voices of women, young, young women, women transitioning and finding that voice. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever, Virginia Woolf, uh, Room to of the, One's Own? I read To the Lighthouse. Um, can't say I liked it. No, <laughs> To the Lighthouse is hard. But A Room of One's Own is very, very slim volume, okay. and she was, that. that is like a treatise 
about how a writer but a, a woman it she says writer but you really feel mm -hmm. that it is a woman of intellect okay. has a space to call her own that she's not serving someone she's not taking care of someone and it strikes me and by the way you got to read it okay it's like I'll it's a it must read i was like oh my gosh this is killing me the, to the lighthouse Oh, well, yeah. Give it <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one you got to go through with a teacher. Um, but, but it strikes me that your mother was just always searching for a room of her own. Mm. And then you gravitated toward, and they gravitated toward you, these women who were helping young girls find their voice, which is, in a sense, a metaphor for a room. Yeah, okay. And and once again, you're helping, you're working with a community that's trying to find that voice as well. Yeah, and, and, and what I also recognized when we were going through all of this, that I couldn't be nearly as fully present with it as some of the younger faculty. And I think that was okay. And it's like, you know what, I, th this hits places that you know, opens wounds for me yeah. that, um, I and plus they're younger and kids can relate to them. I mean, honestly, I am the age of many of their parents. They don't want to see yes. me as much. And you know, my son is in the ninth grade, so they do know me in many ways as, you know, the mom of a current student versus, yep. you know, a faculty member in their late 20s or early 30s. That's not me anymore. And, and you, you spoke of a wound, and I, and I absolutely invite you to tell me that we don't want to talk about this. But you just mentioned your lovely son, who is this beautiful, <laughs> beautiful creature. He is um, like my daughter, 15, maybe? Yeah, 15. Yeah, 15, and going to be a sophomore in high school. Um, and he recently experienced just a touch of what it seems our whole country yeah. has been going through, which is someone slurring him. Sure, a, yeah. a, a racial slur yeah. as so he's walking across the street. He is literally on campus with two of his white friends crossing the street, um, and it is a very busy intersection. Um, usually kids walking out in front of, you know, through the cars, they don't see them. And they had actually stopped to let cars come by, which is a rarity for these kids. Um, and as he was going through, a woman held up a sign that was actually laminated in her plastic sleeve, so it looks like she's had it at the ready, that said, show me your green card, oh. which was clearly directed at, at him as she took the time to pull it up, because as I said, he was crossing with um, two white friends, um, and then her car you know, had a bunch of other bumper stickers like, you know, Hillary for prison, you know, keep Christ in Christmas, proud to be a Catholic, homos need not apply. Um, which, 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 of course, the, yeah. the, the diametrically <laughs> opposing... God, God loves you unless you are, you know, an immigrant. You can't drive around with a sign in your car. Right. <laughs> And so I think that was that was hard for him in that because my husband is an immigrant, he is Muslim, 
Um, and while Zaki has never witnessed any direct issues that Yusuf, my husband, has had, I think he definitely knows, you know, he sees, he hears the anti-Islamic sentiment. You know, he has people constantly butcher, you know, how to say his name. Um, and so he, it's just present. Plus, again, his mother not being the wilting violet. And <laughs> constantly you know an advocate for stuff so I think that was that was hard for him um, in that his friends because the globe picked it up because he was a part of the discovering hate um, national database when they picked it up and saw it so the globe did an article and for friends of his for them, it seemed to be more the novelty of, oh, Zaki, you made the paper. Right. You know, the front page versus, wow, what a crappy reason that you right. made the paper. Um, but I they, I, I, perhaps, and one would hope, that it's because they don't see him as any different. And, yeah. and so it's just, it's adolescence, and oh my gosh, you're famous. Yeah. And all of his teachers took the time, and again, the head of school as well, to tell him how horrible it was and how sorry they were um, and that if he ever wanted to talk or suspend class time with it, just let him know. But again, being an adolescent, of course, you don't want to draw attention to you. Right. Um, but I think just knowing that they were there, to have people you know, reach out to him, I think really made a difference. Um, you know, he's definitely you know, heard, you know, kind of you know, my stories or whatever of growing up in Virginia that it was, you know, I went, I started out on the segregated beach long before I was able wow. to go to Buckrow, um, you know, or when my mother wanted to buy me a dress and he was like three years old and they're like, well, you can try it on in the mop closet and she's like, no, you know, so she talks about how I, you know, integrated some little, um, so I don't remember the name of it. it was in with it's like with women's shop or something children's store um, or just you know again my feisty mother and things that she had dealt with um, you know or even my, my my grandmother who in many ways was um, quite calm and demure but you know and went to college you know after having her kids and then to Columbia to take graduate classes. Right. You know, in the Isn't mid fifties. Wow. You know, that just wasn't typical. So in terms of I guess seeing people bug the system, you know, as we do, but hopefully in a way that's articulate and um intellectual without having to reduce yourselves, um, he sees that no, I I don't lay down and I don't you know, in, as uncomfortable it might be, because I know it used to be for me when my mother would speak up if we were at a restaurant and we had crappy service or something. Yes. Oh my God, I used to hate it. And Zaki hates it the same way I do. And yet I still, I'm not rude, but I'm like, I'm sorry. Like Mother's Day, we're going out. No, nope, it's Mother's Day. You're not sitting me next to the ice machine at the waitstaff station. I have a reservation. I'll you wait. still feel this. Yeah, and it could have just been they're like, whatever. You the, here you go with the microaggressions. Maybe lucky me that I got it, and they figured, oh, you know, single mom and her kid will just right. put her near the bar. That's fine. Put somebody else there. 
but I'm not sitting there. You know, whereas he probably was just mortified that I said something than just sitting there. But I'm yeah. not going to sit there. <laughs> I, I just call that being a New Yorker. You could have. <laughs> no, but, um, it's but it's just, interesting it's, you bring... It's, it's interesting you bring this up because in your whole presence, one would never suspect that you've, that you've lived an experience that isn't Harvard grad and Milton Academy. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. Yes, but, you know, when you have a pedigree parents <laughs> and you come from a background that, that is as well-educated as you are and well-spoken and, as you say, you, you rise above that sort of level of, de, of descent. How do you manage to raise a rational son amidst what goes on in this? I mean, it's so obvious and it's become so, such a part of our culture. How, how can you wrap your head around it or yeah, I don't know. He probably would tell you that I am irrational. He probably would say, like, oh, my gosh, you, like, you know, pick on everything. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, if you only knew, no, so much I feel like I do just let go. Um, but some things you just, you, you have to stand up for. And say, Maybe this person is a jerk to everybody. Lucky me. I can't always assume the layer of race or female or whatever, you don't necessarily, maybe it's a bad day for that person. Same way it could be a bad day for me, you know. So I can't pick apart every little interaction that I have because I will drive myself crazy. Um, but, but also, it's about having a voice. And when you give up that one thing, you have a voice, you have the power to take that idea. And I, I feel that um, there is a side of humanity, the, some of the most debased, that have found their voice um, for, for whatever reason, for commerce, for, um, for their belief system, whatever, but they found their, their voice and it's so negative and so debased yeah. and, and so purposeless. Yeah. You know, I guess I... If, if I have the opportunity to speak up and I don't, then how have I moved the conversation forward or helped someone else? Yes. By keeping quiet. Um, that just perpetuates or allows the injustices to continue. Do you feel that, that there is any healing going on? Or do you think that, the, that we're not really looking at it as a country. Hmm. Internally with Milton with our issues, I think we are healing and moving forward. Right now, as a country, I'm not sure. Um, I think part of it is I am exhausted as so many people. And it's like, you know, you're, you're pushing that stone uphill and it's just getting heavy. And it's like, is it just going to roll over us? Yes. Because there's so many people. You know, <laughs> This metaphor, I'm just going to keep going, but so many people are just jumping on top and just trying to push you down and push you down. And it's just like, wow, you know, am I the crazy one? Wow, maybe, maybe it's me that's crazy thinking that, you know, we should have equity and 
to have a ban and to say that people from certain countries, you know, should be, you know, prohibited and, uh, you know, wow, okay. Things were so much better in Mayberry RFD. What was it, some Tennessee congressman just took down his huge billboard, um, Make America White Again, that's what he yes. was running on? Yes, yes. it's like, seriously, in 2017, that that continues to happen, that I still have to think about um, where, uh, I may have mentioned this to you before, but like I said, I am of a certain age growing up and what I've experienced, you know, living in Boston when busing was going on, um, that there are just certain places that I question, can I go here or not? Even in 2017, really? oh yeah, is that a restaurant that's safe? Is this a place, is me traveling by myself? Absolutely. And uh, a bunch of folks from the office, it was a couple of years ago, they were... Um, <clears throat> Going, going out after work and talking about this bar in, in um, South Beach, South Boston. And I was like, you guys can go, but I'm not coming. And they're like, why? I'm like, I don't go to South Beach. I don't, I'm not going to a bar in South Beach. And I'm sure they probably thought I was being very narrow-minded because the South Beach that they see and experience living there is very different than when I think of South Beach. And so it's like, no, I'm sorry. It's just, uh, it's not happening. And I try to think of that as well as, you know, when people use the term colored, you know, they're not saying it as an offense as much as that is what they know. That's how they grew up. That was the expression. It's not meant as a pejorative. So you have to remember the context and stuff. I can't jump on every, you know, as I say, you can't pick everything. Well, we also, we have a population that is of a certain age and of a certain color and a, a certain mindset that it seems that, remember how you talked about how your mother got angry when she got older? Yeah. I think we got a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate that you've shared so much oh, with me. I think. Thank you. I, it's. It's a powerful It's story. interesting because I don't feel like this is nothing that's like, this is just me. It's nothing unique. Or, I mean, I think of people that have done like amazing things or, you know. You came from the segregated stuff. South and, <laughs> and went to Harvard Grad School for Education studying with the two most prominent women of their time writing about women's voices <laughs> and now you're teaching at one of the top boarding schools. Just trying so. to make sure, you know, the next generation and stuff and, you know, hopefully making a difference. You know, reunion weekend is, is coming up and they're definitely kids that I look forward to having come back and, you know, I've had some say, you were a mentor to me. I'm like, wow, that really makes a difference in my life or even um, a woman that's now head of a school of a Montessori school because uh, it was a college reunion at Wheelock where I'd been dean of students she says you know you don't realize the difference you made in my life for those four years um, and I think of the you know the mentor that I had um, you know when I was in college so yeah it's it's the next generation 
you know, selfishly, I do think, I know that I made a difference for X, Y, and Z because I was here. And you lived a certain way. And having that grace and that presence, that's, that's profound as they get older, as the people who, who went to school here get older and reflect on their time. It's, it's it, as in that role, you represent something. Well, I hope so. You know, there, you definitely you have some that you look forward to seeing come back um, or that you do connect and you still stay in touch with. Because um, I told one of the kids, I said, they moved the alumni of color event from Friday afternoon to Saturday morning. I said, so I'm not coming over. She's like, yes, you are. I'm like, no, I'm not. She's like, yep, you're coming. It's like, oh, my God. I was like, all right, fine. <laughs> she was like, yes, you have to be there. Like even though it's like I don't want to come Saturday morning, I want to stay in my pajamas and you know do whatever. She's like, no, you gotta come. I'm like all right. And that pretty I'll much come. speaks to what I said at the beginning, which is you are you're a woman I just want to sit with for hours oh. and listen to. So thank <laughs> oh, you thank so you. much for spending oh, time pleasure. with me. My and um, and. We'll wrap it, but I'd love to continue this conversation yeah, at some point. Absolutely. We'll get a cup of tea or a glass of wine and keep going. Thank you.